So today I want to talk about sin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now it's a scary thing to do to talk about sin. It's scary because I think the global church on a whole is not that great at talking about sin. I think the reality is, is because I think the church has tended to make sin such a divisive issue where uh, churches will end up doing one of two really bad things. One of them might be to talk about sin all the time, that when you come into that church, all you ever hear is about sin and the wrath of God and punishment and doom and gloom, and every time you go, you feel the worst version of yourself ever. Have you ever been to one of those churches? Or, on the other hand, you get the other extreme kind of church, which never talks about sin ever at all. And it almost takes that whole important part of the Bible and puts it aside because it doesn't want to offend or upset you in any particular way possible. And so rather than talk about sin or anything about wrath or judgment or punishment, what we'll do instead is talk about My Little Ponies and Rainbows. And when you get these two extremes, what you get is, you are the worst sinner ever, repent! Or you get, you are awesome, always which creates a real problem for those of us that want to be maybe in the majority middle. Because our feeling is if we talk about sin, we're either going to get labeled as this kind of liberalistic firebrander, or if we don't talk about sin, we're going to get labeled as a leftist liberal. And so it ends up that you sort of go, okay, well, I'm not quite sure how to handle this really important topic of Scripture. And so we find ourselves just maybe stepping away from it. So that when it is brought up every once in a while, it comes across like there's a lot of nervousness in it. But when you get to Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, God does not mince his words about sin. He does not try to go to any one of those two extremes, but he tries to find a place where you can begin to understand the heart of God in this area of sin, the serious of God that he has towards the issues of sin. And God does not mince his word. He's not hold back. He is very clear to Jeremiah, to Israel, and to the rest of church history that when God's word comes, that written, spoken, incarnate word, when it comes, yes, it's going to uproot, yes, it's going to tear down, yes, it's going to build, yes, it's going to plant, but it's also going to do other things that are really important because God wants to deal with sin. It's the words, destroy and overthrow. Not light, fluffy, nice words. Let me remind you of the context of this by, by reading that passage to us once again, because each week is where we're going to be spending our time in these verses. Jeremiah 1, verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord reached out His hand and touched my mouth. Now, by the way, that word touch there is not like, ooh. The same word touch there is used to talk about scarring in other places in the Old Testament. God shows up and he burns the mouth of Jeremiah with his word because what Jeremiah is holding in him, it hurts to hold it because what he's got to say is going to be divisive. It's going to disrupt. It's going to create that pain that we've been talking about. And so he scars his mouth, if you will, so that he can bring out the word. Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow to build and a plant. And when you begin to get a, a head around the importance of these words, you begin to sit with the reality of how God begins to think about sin, destroy, and overthrow. The word destroy here is the Hebrew word chavid. And chavid uh, literally means to perish, to annihilate, to completely wipe out, 
to destroy. It's not the idea of putting a band-aid over something. It's not the idea of telling you off. It's the reality that like we were talking about last week with the root systems that go deep in us, to destroy something is to so remove it, it's as if it was never there. COVID is not yet destroyed in the world, although it might be managed somewhat in Hong Kong right now. Are you with me? But there's still the chance that COVID can return, and we're seeing it already springing up all over the world. COVID in the Hebrew sense is not chavid yet. When it's chavid, it no longer exists. Does that make sense? That's chavid. The other word here that is used is haras. Haras is the idea of overthrow. Which, which literally means to strip something of its power, to remove its power, to, to bring it down, to pull it down, if you will, to overthrow, turn it around so that what was powerful, what had kept it going in its power, is so stripped of it that there's no more any power in that place. So what God says about the reality of sin is He wants it so eradicated from your life, it's as if it was never there, and any allegiances that you have created out of that sin that's enabled you to be under the power of something else, He wants to overthrow that power so you would truly be free. Now, the structure of this, the reason why God is so passionate about this, the reason why He wants to destroy and overthrow sin in your life is exactly seen in the structure that we've been looking at every week. So here are these three verses of of two words in each verse. And as I said in week one, look at this, uproots and plants are connected together. Reason being is that God wants to show you a trajectory of what the Word of God is designed to do in your life. It's designed to, first of all, come and uproot those deep, false, core beliefs that you have in your life that cause you to believe a lie of God rather than the Word of God. As we talked about last week, He wants to come and uproot those. Why? So that He can trajectory you to a place where He can then plant in you a new Word, plant in you a seed that will flourish and grow, plant in you new hope and new life. So He uproots, not just because He wants to deal with something He does it so He can then give you something. Are you with me? So that's uproot, plant. Then notice, tear down and build. Same idea. God wants to come and tear down those false kind of comforts that we create, as I talked about last week. The comforts we put around our lives that that cause us to behave and act in certain ways to protect ourselves. He wants to pull those things down so we'd realize our only help, our only truth, our only protection is found in Him. So that we are then in a place where He can build new constructs, create new things around our lives, do new things upon us and in us. So in order to do the new, He has to first tear down the old. It's all to bring you in trajectory of new growth, new life, new flourishing. Do you get it? And next week, praise the Lord, we're going to get onto some positive stuff together. And we're going to talk about what this planting and building looks like. I can't wait. But the trajectory of God's Word in your life is moving in that direction, but there's something in the middle that can stop it from getting there. There's a great dividing wall, if you will, that will stop that trajectory of what God's Word wants to do in your life, that will stop you from the building and planting, and that is your sin. That is why right in the middle of all of this, he says, if we want to uproot and plant, if we want to tear down and build, we must first of all destroy and overthrow the dividing wall that stops the trajectory of work of God in your life. 
Oh yes, I want you built up. I want you planted. I want you flourishing. So I'm going to come and destroy and overthrow your sin. Are you still with me? That wasn't insecure. That was true. I was asking you, honestly. Destroy and overthrow. Strong words, aren't they? Which is so ironic. Because I think so often as Christians, we don't want to destroy and overthrow our sin. Instead, we want to hide it or brush it away. We end up treating our sin almost like we're covered in some layer of dust. Oh, oh, get away from me. And we think we can just brush it off or, or, or slip away from it. We think that our, our sin is, is so like, yeah, okay, it's bad. It's, it's not nice and it maybe upsets God's heart, but, but it's really not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, I mean, I just need to manage my sin in a way. I just need to, you know, pray a few times each day and I'll be okay. But I'm not actually going to deal with the reality that I'm fooling myself or finding myself in repetitive cycles of behavior that doesn't please God. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just a, a sinner who's struggling. It's We end up treating sin in every other way than how God actually treats it. Because God says, I want to destroy and overthrow it. And we say, oh, we just want to wipe it away. God says, I want to wipe it out. Come on, church. Which raises a really fascinating question for us. If God is so serious about sin, why are we not? Think about that for a second. I mean, if this is so serious to God, why isn't it actually serious to us? Let me offer a few thoughts on that this morning. I think one of the reasons why it's really not that serious to us is because of how we actually end up thinking about sin. I think primarily as Christians, we think about sin primarily as a behavior or an action, as something we do. And because we've come to define sin as something that we do, which we know is not of God's heart or that we know doesn't align to God's values, it's something we do. Therefore, we see sin primarily as this action and behavior that can be therefore changed by other actions and behavior. And so we don't think it's that serious because we think we can modify our behaviors. We think we can act in different ways. And oh, if only I acted or behaved in other ways, then I wouldn't be such a sinner. So we always think that the power to overcome sin is simply in our hands. We can just act and behave differently. Give you a a gross example that helps get your heart in the right place. Think of your sin as a zit or a pimple on the face of your humanity. And you get a zit. And there it is on your face. And it's a little embarrassing. But it's okay if it's just red. But when it gets pussy and yellow, other people see it and they think it's gross. And then you deal with it. And you you push out that pus. And then it remains red and you hope it goes away. And it kind of does go away, but then another pimple jumps up. Why? Because when you squeezed it, it pushed the stuff in other places. And then suddenly you got, by the way, I had a lot of zits when I grew up. So I really know a lot about this process of, of dealing with your sin compared to a zit. And here's the thing. We behavior modify our lives thinking that that would deal with sin in the same way that we squeeze a zit thinking that deals with sin when we never ask the question, why am I getting zits in the first place? Uh-huh. Come on, church. Why, why, am, why am I getting a repent? Like, why is this happening in the first place? And we, if, we, if we think of sin as a behavior or an action, we're never going to ask the more important question of why are we sinning in the first place? And Scripture has so much to say to us about this. See, look, sin is not just something you do. Sin is also something you are. 
Sin is not just something you do. It is also something you are. This is what scriptures say. It's a, it's a nature that we have. And, and if, if the enemy can keep us in the place of behavior modification, he'll keep you in a place of a vicious cycle where you get so stressed and so exhausted trying to act like a better person, thinking that that is what makes you more of a Christian, rather than realizing that, yes, behavior is important. Yes, the way we act. Yes, we should be considerate of that. Of course, but... There's a broken nature in us. There's the reason why the pimples are still coming. And I need to actually turn myself to the reality of facing what Scripture says about sin. That is not just my behaviors. It is also this nature, my humanity in its core is broken. And therefore, I don't want just the zit to get popped. I need a whole skin graft. I need a regeneration of who I am if I'm truly going to destroy and overthrow. So let me talk to you a little bit about the nature of sin. Genesis 3 gives us the picture of that nature, doesn't it? The description of the fall of humanity. This moment where Adam and Eve take of that fruit of the one tree they were told not to take. Guess what that tree is called? The knowledge of good and evil. And they take this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat it thinking because the snake had told them, the enemy had told them that if they ate of this tree, they would gain more knowledge, so much knowledge that they would become godlike. So in their desire to become more like God, not satisfied to be the image of God, but wanting to be God himself, they take that fruit, they eat it, and they are corrupted in their core. And and you see the immediate effects of this in Genesis 3, the hiding from God in the garden, the blaming of one another for what had happened, the the way that God comes and judges that sin through, through different ways for the man and for the woman, then eventually sent out of the garden, ultimate punishment of being removed from God's presence. All of that is there, but the rest of Scripture wrestles with the idea of what actually happened to our humanity in the eating of that fruit. What took place in the core of who we are that we need to actually focus on as much as we try to modify our behaviors. What really took place? Well, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, spends three chapters, Romans 1 to 3, dealing with that very question, wanting to help the church to understand what is it about this nature of humanity? What has sin so done deeply in us? How have we gotten so entangled that we need God to come and destroy and overthrow Well, let me read you a few verses from Romans chapter 1 to help us to really get a sense of what this nature is all about. Romans 1 verse 18 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of humanity who express the truth by, sorry, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The first thing you need to know about what Genesis 3 does for all of humanity is that sin in its very deepest expression causes all of us to suppress the truth of God, which is the enemy's great deception of Adam and Eve here. The enemy tells Adam and Eve if they eat of this tree, they will get more truth. But what actually happens, as Paul tells us here, is that sin makes us suppress the truth. It makes us actually hold back, suppress, hold into, hide away from the truth and the reality of God in our lives. Sin makes us, like it did for Adam and Eve, hide back from the truth of God in our lives. So that's the first thing. It causes us to suppress truth. Now, whenever you suppress the truth of God, there's always going to be onflowing 
kind of corruption into your spirit and into who you are. Notice how he goes on to say it in verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, talking about Adam and Eve, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So step one for Paul, if you want to think about the nature of sin, is that our sin, what it does is it causes us to suppress the truth of God. And when we suppress the truth of God, here's what happens next. We have our hearts darkened. There's a, there's a shroud, a cloud, if you will, that comes over our hearts and our thinking. And what that does is it holds us back from glorifying God or for thanking Him. This is really important for Paul, and it should be important for us. Because what Paul's trying to show us is that here's what the nature of sin does. It suppresses God's truth, which leads you to no longer worship Him naturally. You no longer want to honor Him, glorify Him, give thanks to Him. No, because you're now darkened by that suppression of truth. So, so you see, sin so deeply entangles us that in the very nature of sin, it darkens us, both our hearts and our minds, so that we are no longer glorifying God or honoring Him. And it's really important you see this, because this is basically saying you were created in Genesis 1 and 2, humanity created for relationship with God, to be shalom, in worship of Him, honoring Him, glorifying Him, thanking Him, rejoicing in Him. Sin suppresses the truth of the glory of God, and so because it suppresses it, we end up not glorifying, not thanking, not worshiping Him. Are you still with me? Now when that happens, a third thing takes place. Because when you're not glorifying or thanking or worshiping Him, when you've suppressed the truth, the third thing is you still have this need in you to find something to worship. But because you've suppressed God's truth, because we are no longer glorifying Him, we then look for other things in which to worship. Let me read this to you from verse 22 and 3. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Check with this. Paul's like, sin in its nature suppresses the truth. It then causes us not to glorify or honor God. So we're not worshiping God anymore. What does it do? It then ultimately exchanges our worship. It's a human exchange from worshiping God to then worshiping something God has created. And that ultimately is what the enemy is always trying to do with sin. The whole reason the enemy brings sin into this world has corrupted humanity and places in the nature of which we have is to cause us to no longer worship God, but to worship anything other than God, anything that is created. So we've done this human exchange, suppress the truth, no longer glorify and honor, and have exchanged the glory and the honor of God to the glory and honor either of ourselves or of others or of our bank accounts or of our relationships or of our status or of how many followers we have on social media or whatever it might be that we now worship because it's not just about popping some zit. We have to actually realize how deeply entrenched we are in the lie that the enemy has created. That sin is not so much what we do, it is so much about who we have become. This, the Bible speaks about, is idolatry. No longer worshiping God, but worshiping something else. And we all do it. And yet we just want to away our sin. And God says, destroy and overthrow. 
Hmm. Let me summarize what I think Paul is trying to say to us in these verses by reading you this. Go to the next one. Sin hates the truth of God, suppresses it, and exchanges it for what sin loves and worships. Sin loves to worship and serve the created and not the creator. In all of us sits the reality of this exchange and the brokenness it creates. That's the issue that we face. Another way of thinking about this is to think about how Jesus speaks in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, how do you summarize the whole of the law of the Old Testament? And Jesus goes, here's how you summarize it. And he he speaks the great Shema in, in Judaism. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. In these two come all of the law of the Old Testament, all of the law of the God of high. Love God, love your neighbor. Here's what sin is. Sin is the failure to love God. And when we fail to love God and place that love that is deserving of Him onto anything else, we get idolatry. And sin is the failure to love neighbor. And anytime we devalue our neighbor and we fail to appreciate and love and serve them as greatly as we'd want to love and serve ourselves, then we've committed the sin of injustice. Idolatry and injustice become the two main buckets, if you will, of which all our sins sit within because we failed to love God and we failed to love our neighbor as God would desire us to do, idolatry and injustice. And here's what happens when we live with idolatry and injustice in our hearts. All of the power dynamic of allowing God to lead us allowing God to be the ultimate authority in our lives, allowing God to be the one who He desires to be, us knowing that we're second, Him being first. That whole dynamic, we shift the allegiance of that dynamic and we begin to put it on other things. We allow other things to rule over us, things that are designed to corrupt us rather than allow the one true God who only wants to build and plant in us to rule over us. You following with this? This is why in in Romans 1, chapters 5 through 7, Paul goes from talking about the nature of sin to then giving us an example of what sin is like. And the language he uses from chapters 5 to 7 is all this language about the corruption of power that sin does. Let, Let me read to you some of these things. Reigning like a king. This is Paul describing what sin is like. It reigns like a king. It holds dominion on us like a lord. It enslaves us like slave masters. It's a power that sees us. It's hostile, occupying tenants. The reason why it is all of this is the reason why in Jeremiah 1, verse 9 and 10, it says not just destroy, but also overthrow. Because your sin not only is something that needs to be eradicated, you also need to realize that your sin has entangled you, entrenched you, made you a slave to the slave master, that there's a power dynamic that is unhealthy in you. So you not only do you need the sin to be removed, but you also need to be, the power structures to be pulled down. You need to be overthrown. There needs to be those allegiances that you've connected your life to to be overthrown. You've suppressed the truth of God as a lie. You've failed to honor and glorify and worship Him. That's caused you to exchange your glory to God, to glory and worship of other things, which has put you in a place of being seduced by their power, so destroy and overthrow. So anytime that you think 
that your sin is just a little surface thing that you can flick away with some behavior modification. You've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Anytime that you think that your sin is just maybe a bad thing, but is paled into insignificance because of all of the good things you do in your life, you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Anytime that you think that your sin is something surfacey, but doesn't deeply entangle in you, as it says in 1 Peter 2, you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here's why all of that is so critical. When we reduce the seriousness of sin, we also always end up reducing the glory of grace. Come on, church, you need to track with this. When we reduce the seriousness of sin and we make it just a a surface little thing that's really not that big of a deal, we actually end up reducing the profundity of the power of the grace of God. Because if sin truly is so deeply entrenched in me, if sin is not just about my actions and my behavior, if sin does all of this stuff that causes me to be in allegiances that I don't want to be, if it does all of that in me, then I am powerless to change it. Oh, how I need the grace of God. But if sin's no big deal and it's just a little thing that I can brush off like a piece of dust, well, then the grace of God is a nice little thing to me. Rather than actually being the thing that it truly is, the only thing that enables me to breathe. The grace of God, which is found in the love of God. And when we think about what it is to destroy and overflow, we're taken to the place of the cross. Why? Because it has to be the word of God that deeply rips out, perishes, annihilates the sin of the lies of the enemy. And so the word of God, Logos, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ comes and he lives a life that shows us what humanity would have been like if it hadn't chosen to eat that fruit. Who lives a life where you love God and love neighbor and never see idolatry or injustice take place. Who lives a life when he goes to the cross accused of the sin that he had not done, taking on his shoulders the sins that we have done. Who exchanges it? Why? Because God is angry and is trying to punish? Because God is upset? No, because God loves you and so deeply loves you that he sends his only son. John three sixteen, the most famous verse in the Bible. God so is angry at you? No. God so wants to punish you. God so loves you that he sends his son. And I want you to see what Jesus does on the cross for us and how God does this. So deeply theological but important. Are you okay? Here's what it happens. See, where we in sin do a human exchange, God in grace does a divine exchange. See, we have exchanged in our sin our worship of the Creator for the worship of the created. God has exchanged the perfection of His Son for the destruction of the cross. That, my friends, is love. Truly costly love. Love that is self-sacrificial. Love that is to destroy and overthrow. And because this exchange is taking place, an exchange that we do not deserve. 
We made our exchange. But God comes in and says, I will make an exchange for you. Where you suppress the truth, I will bring the one who is the truth, the way, and the life. Where you no longer honor and no longer naturally thank me, I will bring one who will demonstrate to you what true worship is. Where, where you have exchanged worship of me to worship of creation and come seduced by the powers that that brings to you, I will bring one who will not be seduced by the powers of this world, but give up power, humble himself, so he could be lifted up in resurrection to be the name that is above every name. I will exchange all of that to bring you the Christ who is the only one that can deal with the root of the issue. And deal with it once and for all. This is why, when it comes to thinking about why we are wanting to deal with sin in our lives, why we should be more serious about it, why we should align ourselves to that destruction and overthrowing that God wants to do, we are to do that not because we think it's because we're about to be punished. We are to do it because of God's love to release us into freedom. See, this is why 1 John 4, 18 says that there is no fear in love. That perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So your motive for wanting to deal with sin in your life is not fear based in punishment, but love based in grace. May that change a little bit of how you think about why it's important for you to bring your sin before the Lord. Oh, love that's based in grace. Hmm. Let me give you five ways, practically this week, that you can do a process of letting this destruction and overthrow take place. Here's the first thing you can do. Spend some time this week asking God to reveal truth to you. Remember that you've suppressed truth because of sin. So ask God to reveal truth to you. Ask Him to show you the ways in which you have suppressed truth in your life. Ask Him to show you your sin. It's not an easy thing to do, but any time you ask God to do that, He will do that because He's faithful and just. Ask him to show it to you. And when he shows it to you, write it down. Capture it. Write it down somehow. Capture it. Why? Because you're bringing something in the darkness out into the light. You're naming it. You're saying, yeah, this is something that I've believed, or this is something that I've been doing, or this is something that I know is not of God because the truth of God has been revealed to me. I bring it into the light where the truth of God should be. Then, thirdly, we do that joy of confession, repentance, and receiving. Confessing, naming what you've written down, repenting, which is turning, pivoting back towards God, wanting God's truth and not the lie of the enemy, and then receiving, receiving that forgiveness, knowing that He loves you and setting you free, and that's a beautiful, powerful thing. But then, don't stop there. Then, push down below the surface again, and ask God to show you why you're not just getting uh, one or two pimples, but why it seems that you get them all the time. And ask him to show you some of the harder truths. And that process of discovering those deep-seated core beliefs is a tough one. And I want to encourage uh, you, if this is something that you really want to take seriously, the work of Oasis here at the Vine, our counseling center, the, the men and women that work there professionally trained to help people to uncover these false core beliefs that they're holding on to. And I just want to encourage you to think about uh, reaching out and getting involved. If that is something that you're really, if you're recognizing that there's some false core beliefs in you that, that you're not sure how to name, join with our Oasis team. They would love to walk with you in a season and help you to do that. 
And then once that's done, remember to always finish by glorifying and thanking God. Remember, that's the very thing that the enemy wants to strip from you. Make sure that's the very thing that you proclaim over him as he has shown you the truth, as you've repented it before him. Praise and thank him and glorify him. And in doing that, you are prophetically shifting what it is that the enemy wants to do with sin in your life. Let me close finally with this. I've been a senior pastor here for, for seven years now. And during that time, I've sat with many of you as you've struggled with your sin. And I've sat with those of you that have been broken and hurting and raw. I've sat with some of you where uh, you've been the cause of that sin or where you've suffered because of someone else's sin. And I've sat with, with you who have been able to confess your sin. And I've sat with you, some of you, that have not been able to do so. And in every single way, I see the trajectory of what the Word of God wants to do in us as a church. He wants to take us from that uproot and that tear down to that place of planting and building. And yet that dividing wall is so often there when Christ has shed His blood for our freedom. So in love, love compels me to say this to you this morning. Deal with your sin. Destroy and overthrow. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for not treating lightly the issue of sin. We thank you that you don't treat sin the way we treat it. We're thankful that your mindset from day one was to destroy and overthrow. And Lord, we've exchanged the truth for a lie. We've held back our glory and honor of you. We've exchanged that for the worship of something created. And we've allowed ourselves to be seduced by their powers rather than being under your reign. Father, forgive us. Father, we come before you today not in fear that's based in punishment. We come to you today in love that's found in grace. As we were praying before the service, we saw a picture of the stone that was in front of the tomb of Jesus, a big, heavy stone that would have taken a whole bunch of people to try to move. And for some of you, it feels like sin is like that in your life. It's like this big obstacle in your life. Some of you in this room, there's cycles of sin behavior that you've been trying behavior modification to deal with, where today's word for you is that actually there's so much more that's deeper there. And the challenge and the encouragement for you is to come and ask God to reveal to you this week the deeper things. And so often we have this big stone in front of us and it's the stone of sin and we're, we're trying to push it out of the way with our own strength and one person could never move that stone. But in the visitation of the angels and in the miracle that took place in Jesus' resurrection, that stone was rolled away so that when the women came to anoint Jesus' body with oil, it was already pushed to one side. Some of you today just need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and, and to completely wipe out, completely remove the stone from you. I want to remind you of that picture that we see in Luke 15 of the parable. Son, who is awakened to his senses, as it says in that scripture, and realizes that they've fallen so far and he gets himself up and he begins to walk home. 
And he's expecting punishment. He's expecting anger. He's expecting all the worst things. He actually goes home expecting to be a slave rather than a son. And the father is pictured jumping off the front porch and running through the fields with tears streaming down his face, arms wide, embracing the son, where the son felt like he deserved punishment. God wraps him in love. May you know the love of Christ for you today. And may that love compel you to destroy and overthrow compel you to realize that in the death of Christ on the cross, a high price was paid for your freedom. May you see with eyes of love the resurrection that comes through the freedom that you have now from sin. And as you keep those short accounts with God, as you have that regular lifestyle of confession and repentance and receiving, may you know that Christ's love compels you and it releases you. Take some time in this moment as we reply and respond in worship. Take some time to ask Him to show you truth. Write it down if you need to. Confess, repent, receive. Ask Him to go further and deeper and then to give Him thanks and honor and glory. Take some time now, even just in your prayer in this moment, to maybe step through that cycle with the Holy Spirit and allow him to do his work of love in your life.